order of business is I have to embarrass my son because today, it's not often, matter of fact, never in my life, that I get to be in such a public format and it happens to be one of my children's birthdays. So happy 19th birthday, Caleb Cyberson. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's exciting. So how many of you are pretty consistently early to everything you do? Got, got some hands, got some hands. How many of you are pretty consistently just like on time? So there's still quite a few hands missing, so I'm going to guess <laughs> how many of you are pretty consistently late to everything. And by default, those of you not raising hands might be because you're not here yet, and you'll listen to this because <laughs> you're late, and we're going to nab you on the way in. Um, yeah, so, you know, my husband and I, we've, we've, uh, we've had to adjust our time over the years, because when we first got married, it was just the two of us, and when it was just the two of us, it was pretty easy to get ourselves dressed and ready and out the door, and it's pretty simple. So we were pretty much always on time. We weren't the early people, but we were always on time. And then we had our first, and we're like, oh, okay, it's a little bit harder, get the baby and the diapers and all the stuff, and we were like pretty consistently about five minutes late. Then we had our second, and we're pretty consistently like seven to ten minutes late now, and then we had our third, and we're like, wow, we're in a bad trajectory here. We've got to change something. Something has to happen, and we can't like, be a half an hour late to things. So we started talking, and we're like, what do we need to do? And we said, okay, we need to be as if, if, if something started to say 8.30, church starts at 8.30, we have to be there at 8.15. And it wasn't a mental game, like setting your alarm clock 10 minutes early so you can press snooze a bunch of times. It was literally, we had said, church starts at 8.15, so then when we were 15 minutes late, we were actually on time. Worked swimmingly well. And then we had our fourth, and then we were like, you know, like two or three minutes late again because that, you know, bumped us again. And then we had number five and six. They were the twins, and, um, and they just threw everything into a mess because they were puking all the time, and we were just late. And now it's just crazy because now I'm here early for Jaden, and now he's doing an amazing job getting all the rest of the kids here. So, but all that to say, no matter what your timing is, what we do know is that God's timing is best. What we do know is that when he has a plan and he sets that in motion, his timing is best. There's no other timing that we can do. There's nothing that we can do that can force God's hand to make something happen any sooner. No matter how much we beg and plead and pray, if God has a plan... I want you guys to be encouraged and to know that he has a plan because there's a plan and a purpose for that. So we're going to go through a few, uh, a few people in the Bible. There's dozens more. We're not going to go through all the characters in the Bible, but, or not characters, people. And we're going to look at a few. Abraham, um, from the moment that Abra- Abram, at the time known as Abram, set out from Haran until Isaac was born was 25 years. 25 years from the moment that God told Abraham, or Abram at the time, you are going to be the father of all nations. It was 25 years until Isaac's birth. I don't know about you, but when you're praying about something and you're, you have hopeful expectations for those prayers, I don't know that any of us are hopeful in our expectation that in 25 years from now, God will answer that. I think there are certain situations, like I've been hopefully praying for my sister to come to know the Lord since I became a Christian at age 15, 
and I'm 42, she's 44, but I'm hopeful. Even if she's 85, I will accept that, right? But I think in general, when we're praying about things, we're not like, all right, God, in 25 years from now, but Abraham had to wait 25 years before Isaac was even born, and he was an old, old man at that point. And then once Abraham or Isaac was born, we, we know the story about how God had called Abra, Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain, and on the mountain, um, he was asking uh, Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, to build an altar, to put him on the altar, and to sacrifice him. In that time, it, the Bible doesn't specify how long that took, but even if it was hours, can you imagine how long that wait would have been from the bottom of that mountain to climbing up that mountain, all those hours of walking, all the time it took to build that altar, all that time it took to tie Isaac up, to raise the knife, and to get ready to sacrifice his one and only son, just to hear God call out, wait, stop, don't do that. But all of that happened in hours, but it probably felt like a lifetime for Abraham. All the while, all those hours that they, that they were building the altar and Isaac was helping him and then getting tied up, all that time, all those hours spent, there was no ram. There was nothing nearby that they knew. I, I can only imagine that from the Bible's description where it says, then they turned and they saw and heard a lamb, a ram, that that would have been visible and audible in all those hours. But in that moment, in that exact moment, that ram was there. They heard that ram. So in that exact moment was the exact plan that God had. It was God's plan and purpose for that exact moment. Because if that ram had been there any sooner, would have the lesson been learned by Abraham and Isaac about how faithful God is. If that ram had shown up before they had built the altar, it wouldn't have been as great of a story. The lesson would not have been as as uh, palpable. What about Joseph? We know that Joseph was despised by his brothers, dearly loved by his father, but his brothers tricked him and sold him into slavery. After they sold him into slavery, he went from slavery to imprisonment, and all kinds of horrible things happened to Joseph. In that time, Joseph certainly never, um, never expected to go through all that hardship, but God had a plan and a purpose for his life. And that plan and that purpose had to do with exactly what he was going through. So as Christians, um, you know, I think we oftentimes think that we have to, uh, that we're going to live this really super easy life just because we believe in God. But we can see story after story in the Bible where there is just tremendous hardship. Uh, In Elijah, uh, 1 Kings 17, God tells him to leave and to go wait by the Kareth Brook and to wait. That's all scripture says. Just wait. Like, like I, knowing me, I would be like, but what am I doing, God? Like, I want to be doing something. What am I doing while I'm waiting? It doesn't say. It just says, wait. God called him there to wait. God provided for him in the waiting. God provided for him in that purpose, in, in, in that time where he had that plan for him to be by that brook. God said he's going to send the ravens, the ravens are going to come, and they're going to provide me, and he's by the or bread, and he's by the brook, and so that's going to be water for him to drink. So God provided in the time of trial, but Elijah didn't know why he was there. Take Esther. Esther was exiled, and then she was orphaned, and then her uncle Mordecai 
um, picked her up, basically, like started taking care of her. And in that time, we know that the queen was ousted by the king, and he commanded to go find all the virgins and to bring him all the virgins in the town. Well, what we know about historical facts from that time period, we know that most of those were young girls, teenagers. So he gathered all of these young girls, and what happened in that time is in that, for one full year, those girls had to be groomed. They had to go through this whole beautification process to smell lovely, to look lovely, to act lovely, all these things, a one full year grooming process. And the end result for that was that on the day that those girls were called, one at a time, one night at a time, those girls were raped by the king. It doesn't use the word rape, but it says she went to the king, and in the morning she came out. I don't know about you, but if I was held in captivity for a year, and I was a young teenage girl, and I was brought in against my will, that looks like rape. But she had a plan and a purpose for being there. I'm not saying God caused her to be raped, but I'm saying in that time that she was there, God called her to something much bigger. And her, her calling was that she was going to save all the Jewish people from dying because God had put her there, as Scripture tells us, for such a time as this. For such a time as this, Esther was put in that place to save an entire population of people. But that didn't mean that she wasn't going to go through hardships. Just even in that period, she went through hardships. But God still had her there for such a time. And then Simeon, he had to wait, Scripture tells us in Luke 2, he waited his entire life. His whole life. That's all it says. He waited his whole life. What did he wait for? To see the Messiah. That's all it says. And then it says, and when he held the Messiah, he then said, come and take me. There is waiting in our lives, and there is a time and a season for everything that happens in our lives. God doesn't cause the bad things to happen in our lives, but in that, we have to remember that God is good, that God is faithful. This is my family, and I'm going to try to tell it as quickly as I can, uh, the birth of our family. My husband and I, Jason, we met in college. We were 18 and 19. We were super young. Um, and in those early phone calls, when we would chat on the phone, uh, you know, getting to know each other, at some point in one of those phone calls, we both discussed how we both wanted to adopt someday. And uh, we had no reason to want to adopt. Neither one of us come from adoption. Not in our families, we don't come from adoption. Nowhere in our extended families is there adoption. The, the, the notion and the idea of adoption was foreign to both of us, and yet, both of us knew that we wanted to adopt. It was this really surreal moment in my life, and I think he would say the same in his, when we both realized that we both wanted to adopt. And so, you know, we hit it off, and he happens to be pretty good-looking, so, you know, we married. So um, after we got married, uh, we were still in college and super poor, and we're like, well, this is not the time to start a family. So we um, waited and when we finally did start to try our, to have our family, um, we found that it was incredibly difficult. So we didn't know we wanted to adopt, and adoption was not the result of infertility, but we ended up with 10 years of hardship and just tremendous trials and struggles. 
to conceive our son, Caleb, the oldest one who's 19 today, far, the big guy, far right. Um, we uh, went through two miscarriages um, and finally were able to have him. Those miscarriages were really hard, um, and I had no idea that that would be the beginning of our story. I was really, really hopeful there was no story, um, but that was the beginning of our story. Then our daughter, Tira, far, your far left, um, Tira was born 15 months later, and it's not that it was a shock. We tried for her, but we didn't think that it was going to work because of all of our infertility issues. And so 15 months later, no miscarriages. Our beautiful little joy, uh, Tira, Elizabeth, was born, and she is such a joy to us. And then Jaden, in the middle behind Jason and I, um, when, uh, when we started trying to conceive her, um, is when it started to get really hard. For three and a half years, we tried to conceive her. Um, and in those three and a half years, um, I went on to have five more mis- or three more miscarriages for a total of five at that point. Um, and some of those miscarriages were uh, almost at the very end uh, of the first trimester. Um, and it was some of the most uh, grueling, grueling years of my life. It was so incredibly painful. Um, after my fifth miscarriage, I remember our church family at the time, a different church, um, that, you know, the, the outpouring of love and support from them um, was so critical to me at that time. Um, I'm not a saver of everything. I throw everything away, much to my husband's dismay. Um, I'm more of a minimalist, and um, I saved all 57 cards that my, fir- my church family had sent to me. To me, those are letters from God, like as if they were written from him for me in that moment. And I can feel the hand of God when I sometimes switch through those and I read those cards because I know that in that moment, God was with me. Even in the midst of some of the worst heartache, I knew that God was still with me. Jaden is such a blessing to this community. She, um, she sings and leads worship for several ministries around Manchester and Concord, uh, Harmony Home and New Life Ministries and uh, 1269 and The Merge and other ones. Um, and she's just such a, such a blessing to the community. Her name, uh, she was conceived by IVF on Christmas Eve, and so her name is God Has Heard, Jaden, and then Noel uh, on Christmas. So God Has Heard on Christmas. So that's our little Jaden. And then Ivory to the far right um, was another very long three years, two more miscarriages um, for a total of seven miscarriages and just tremendous heartache and more infertility treatments and more, just more, more, more heartache and crying. And so after Ivory was born, um, my husband and I had discussed, you know, I I can't do this anymore. I, I emotionally, I can't do this. We had wanted to adopt from the very beginning. We wanted a large family from the very beginning. We, we really felt that was um, something that God had called our family to. It wasn't just like, hey, we aren't satisfied. You know, we got some slack from our friends, like, why don't you guys just stop? You're only causing this pain. You have the, the ability to stop it. But it's, it's hard to explain. We didn't feel like we even could stop. We felt like this was a calling from God. And so after Ivory was born... Um, uh, we decided we would start the adoption process. I really thought in that moment that 
like, it was just going to be so much easier. It couldn't have been any harder than those 10 years of infertility and seven miscarriages and all that heartache and all that crying. So we started the process through Haiti. We had taken our two oldest kids down to Haiti on a missions trip and um, with Lender and Melissa, and we thought, oh, maybe we can adopt some of the kids from this orphanage. So we talked to Pastor Samuel and Melissa, and they said these kids are not up for adoption, so we had to stop doing that. And then we um, switched to South Africa, uh, well, Ghana first, and then South Africa, and that was a mess, and um, basically uh, they shut the door on that for us. Um, and then we um, moved to foster care. We were licensed foster parents for four years, and in those four years of being licensed, we did not um, receive a single child in our home, none at all. And we kept hearing, oh, we need foster families, we need foster families, and here we were, a loving, willing, able-bodied, you know, family, ready to adopt, and uh, we never had a single child come through our home. We came close several times. Oftentimes, we would get turned down, ultimately, because we already had four children, and other families had two or none or one, and we understood that. Having gone through our own infertility, we understood, and we were not in the business of trying to take people's children away or take children from other families that couldn't have children, so we just, you know, we let, we let those go, and yeah, I shed some tears, but ultimately we knew, okay, you know, we would rather see a family who can't have children have those children, so we just waited, and so at some point we finally uh, met with an attorney in um, Milford, and we signed up with her, and shortly after we signed up with her, we, um, we got matched with a, a little girl, and we were so, so excited. Um, our home group hosted a baby shower for us, and um, we had the whole nursery set up, the crib, a closet full of little girl clothes. I was so excited because she was a little African-American baby, and I was so excited for her little afro with my bows, and just, I, I was so ready to pour all of me into her, and um, on the flight out to Arizona, we ended up finding out, or I, as I was reading my Bible, I heard God tell me, you're not going to get her. And I remember thinking on the plane, no, God, that's, that can't be God. That's just the enemy trying to scare me and whatever. And so we get to Arizona, and we're there for a couple of days, and, you know, we're buying gifts for the other children of this mother and just sightseeing and waiting for the baby to be born. And I wake up on Jaden's, uh, the girl in the middle, I wake up on her ninth birthday that morning in Arizona, and I hear God, I'm like instantly in a panic at 5 a.m., and I hear God say, this is the day you're, you're going to find out you're not getting her. And so I went out to the living room. We were staying in a lovely family's home who were believers, and, and uh, the rest of the home was empty. And she had all these books on the table, and I just started reading through some of them, Heidi Baker's Miracle Book. And I just started weeping and begging and praying to God for a miracle in this moment. But no miracle came. In fact, we lost that little girl that day. We found out that the mother had um, already had the baby two weeks prior, already had the baby named, already had a nursery set up. So from all that we could see, it was a scam, and, um, and so we didn't get her. One, uh, so I was in September, September 1st, and then in December of 20, same year, 2014, um, we were at church, 
and we were singing during worship a song. I don't remember the name of the song, but it was talking about giving God all your hopes and all your dreams. And I remember coming up to the altar during that song, and I just started weeping, and I just started giving all of my hopes and all of my dreams over to God because I couldn't take that pressure anymore of you know, is this adoption going to happen? Like, God, I really feel like you've called us to this, but I can't do this anymore. And I knew that I had to be okay with God and me, that in the end, our relationship had to be intact. And so I laid it all on the line, all at the feet of Jesus at the altar that day, and I just wept, and I gave God all of it. And I told him, even if we don't adopt God, I love you. Even if it never happens, I'm okay with you. And so I gave it to God. One week later, I was homesick. My husband brought the four kids to church. And while he was at church, earlier in that day, um, a woman had been having her own time with God. And she said, God, if I am supposed to talk to him, you need to bring me face to face with him. And Jason and Chris Roberge sat in the same exact row that day, and Jason had to scooch past her body like this. And she said, all right, God. Chris Roberge ended up talking to Jason that day, and she said, I know about your failed adoption, and my son is pregnant, him and his wife, with twins, and they can't keep them. Would you be willing to adopt our boys? In that moment... In the moment of giving it all to the Lord at the altar, I didn't know what the end result was going to be, and I was okay with the end result being no. But God had other plans. When we were in Arizona three and a half months prior to, or three months prior to, they were finding out they were pregnant with these boys, and they were deciding what to do with them. While our lives were falling apart in Arizona, God was already, long before that, making a plan for these boys. We don't know what God's plan is. We may have been clued in to some of that way back in college that we were supposed to adopt, but we didn't know what that plan looked like. And in the midst of unbearable pain, when we lost Eliana, unbearable. It was the worst thing out of all seven miscarriages. Losing Eliana was the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. There are moments I still grieve because to me that was like a stillbirth. But I could still see the goodness of God in all of that because in those moments... Jason called home as we're flying home, and he talked to my dad, who was babysitting our four kids, and he said, Steve, take everything out of the nursery. Get it all out, because I don't think Bethany can handle that. So several of our friends and my father emptied that nursery. To this day, I have no idea where any of that stuff is. I don't know what happened to any of it. I came home, and I saw the nursery, and I fell to the ground on my knees just crying, but I knew that that more or less that one-time cry would have been significantly worse 
had the love of God not been in such a tender moment of Jason calling and my friends coming and my dad emptying that room. When you're going through trials, Charles Spurgeon says, when, uh, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. And all of those heartaches, it was the sovereignty of God that got me through them. And all of them. The definition of sovereignty is supreme power or authority. So in essence, God is in control. Whatever situation, whatever heartache, whatever trial, whatever you're waiting on today, God is still in control. No matter how long you have to wait, and we can see from all those people in the beginning, some people waited a lifetime. God is in control. In Colossians, it says he existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. God is the beginning and the ending of time. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is bigger than anything and bigger than everything. He is all present. Psalm 121, 1-2 says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. His plan has a purpose, and it's eternal. We all know the scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, really well. I would imagine most of us could recite it. But when you stop to process what that verse is saying, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the chaos that's going on in your life, when you stop to process... It says, for I know the plans, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. In the midst of all trials, in everything that's going on, in the midst of waiting for whatever it is that you're waiting for, God has a plan, and that plan is not to harm you. That plan has eternal purpose. Our story has eternal purpose. <clears throat> Genesis fifty twenty says, You intended to harm me. So let me back up and say, Genesis tw- uh, 50 is coming from the story of Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery, when he was, you know, ousted by his brothers and and imprisoned and all that stuff, all this heartache in Joseph's life. And Joseph said, "You you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph had the ability in the, the place that he was in to save all of the, all those people's lives because of the famine. His brothers who sold him into slavery included Our story um, is no different than anyone else's story. The details are different, but we all have stories. We all have things in our lives that we can look at, that we can say, God, you did this. God, you got me through this. That we can all say, these are the areas where I felt loved by God because in this trial, this is what happened. 
In our story, I felt like God had said, I want you to write a book. And so, obediently, I wrote the book. I was waking up at 4, 5 every morning, writing the book until the twins would wake up, and then I would put the computer to the side, and I just kept working on the book. Since the book published in May, I have an author email address. I keep, I'm sorry, I keep getting emails from people all around the world that I don't know, perfect strangers, and the emails and the testimonies of them reading my book, which is not my book, it is God's story, and I fully recognize that, but all the emails that are coming in are emails saying, thank you for writing your story, because I read your book and I read your story, I've given my life to the Lord. Because I read your book, I rededicated my life to the Lord. I'm going through infertility. I'm going through adoption. I'm going through, you know, miscarriages. And because I read your book, I've rededicated or dedicated my life to the Lord. I remember the first time I read one of those stories out loud to Jason. I was just crying in the kitchen. He's like, you okay? And I said, yeah, you have to listen to this email I got. And he got teary-eyed, and he said, Bethany, for every penny an hour you put into that book, that one soul right there is worth every last penny we put into that book and every hour of work you put into that book. But it hasn't stopped there. There's nothing different about me. There's nothing different about you guys. We all have stories, and what we do with those stories, how we use those stories to tell the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the good news of how much God loves us, is all within our grasp. John and Jaden, can you guys come up? So um, we all have that ability to tell our stories. I think as Christians, we get really afraid to um, talk to people about who God is. I think we get really afraid of, of um, evangelizing and, and going up and saying to somebody, do you know Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. I don't know very many people that have gotten saved through that way but I know a whole lot of people that have come to know the goodness of the Father and his love for them through relationships, just through relationships. Because in those relationships, as you begin to have conversations about the amazing saving grace of God and the goodness of what he did in the midst of that hardship, in those moments is where God meets you in those moments where God speaks to you and speaks to others. I'm going through medical stuff right now and I don't know what's going to come from that. They're doing all kinds of testing and MRIs and everything. But I thought about this as I was preparing for this sermon and I thought, what if it's really terrible news? And I thought, I'm actually excited because I remember our story and I see the outcome and the fruit of being able to go to parties with my husband and work events and all these things and being able to tell people about the goodness of God. And we've seen the impact of that on a regular basis as we tell people our story. And I say, okay, God, whatever this medical stuff is, I give it to you. I give it to you. Because whatever comes of that, I will use it to praise your name. 
time right now I would love for you guys to just think about what it is you're waiting for what struggle what trial are you going through and to use this altar as your place of giving it all to God this altar is nothing more than two by fours plywood and carpet there's nothing special about these stairs this altar where the special comes in is in what happens between God and you at a place of surrender what happens between you and God when you put it all at the feet of cross so I invite you guys to come up not not for people to pray with you although we are happy to do that and we will but to just lay it at the cross this is not a scary place it is a place of full surrender and God will meet you in this place
to 